Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So great to be here with you on Call-In, which is where we do the show live every Thursday, or on Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or iHeartMedia, or wherever you're listening to this. I think it's going to be a fun half an hour or so of travel talk. And to help me with that, uh, Brian Kevin is on the line. He is the editor-in-chief of Down East Magazine, and he is also, I'm very proud to say, the author of our newly released guidebook to the Maine Coast. It's called Fromer's Maine Coast. I actually edited it, so I know it inside and out, and I can tell you uh, that Brian is one of the most impressive experts that we work with because he really knows Maine. Uh, so, huh. <laughs> welcome. Very to, kind of you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Brian. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, we've been in the trenches. We got to work side by side on this one. It was great. I know. And it really was the trenches because a lot of things did change in Maine uh, during the pandemic. So why don't we start with that? What's changed and what can visitors expect? Maybe people who haven't been to Maine since 2019 or before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can only imagine what your last couple of years have been like in this line of work, you know, as everything <laughs> keeps shifting and reshifting around us. Yeah. Um, you know, Maine fared fairly well throughout the last two years compared to a lot of a lot of the country. And, and I think part of that is due to the fact that it is you know, sparsely populated, but also just not very dense. You know, it's, mm. a, it's a predominantly rural state, and that makes a difference. There were some pretty aggressive policy moves early on in 2020, including, I, I think, an embrace of kind of shutdown tactics, more so than other pockets of the country, and, and I think more so than in a lot of other tourism-heavy pockets of the country. The 2020 tourism season here um, did kind of ramp up but not until August or so. And I think keeping yeah. people away early on probably made a difference. You know, last year, things rebounded here in a really big way. Um, in a huge way. I, you yeah. know, I was editing your book at the same time as I was researching my guidebook on New York. And much to my shock, for the first time I've ever seen this, prices in Maine for hotels were higher than they were in New York City. Which was, it blew my mind. Was shocking. Um, we had last updated this book. I want to say, do you remember? Was it 2018 or 2017 thereabouts? I think it was 2018. Yeah. There were a few times when I, you know, would check a website, call up a manager, stop by for a walkthrough for a place and have to do a sort of, excuse me, did I catch that right? Um, <laughs> but it, it is something that we've seen in the last few years because, you know, prior to the pandemic, tourism numbers just grew by leaps and bounds here. And it was interesting to watch how some of the traditional tourism centers of the state, namely Southern Maine and the Southern Maine coast, sure. um, were, were really starting to share billing with areas that historically it's been harder to get people. So visitation in 2021, the pandemic notwithstanding, was up over 2019. Katie wow. has set a new record itself with over 4 million visitors, which I think had only happened once before. I mean, it's just an astronomical amount of people. And yeah, I think you can chalk a lot of that up to the fact that Maine is very easily accessible from the rest of the populous Northeast. You have an awful lot of people who were declining or unable to go abroad. 
And so right. I think it was an appealing choice. How that pans out this coming year, you know, when people maybe have a few more options over last year is an open question. But the main office of tourism, you know, like a lot of, of agencies got, I want to say it was like $11 million from the American Rescue Plan. And so they're really aggressively promoting the region now. Hmm. Uh, I think we're I think we're in for another really big one. Well, can Maine sustain that? Because I remember you and I had lots of talks about the fact that the big problem for tourism in, in Maine is there just aren't enough people to work at the hotels and the lobster shacks and at Acadia National Park. There's a big labor shortage there. And that's a problem nationally, of course, but sure. it's exacerbated here by the fact that Maine is a state that has struggled with negative population growth for quite a while. And the, the common lament here, although it really sort of depends where you in zero in geographically, is that the state loses its young people. And the young people are often who you have, you know, fluffing pillows and waiting tables and things. So that's difficult. The visa programs have been curtailed, obviously, over the course of the pandemic. And so that has cut down on some of the summer labor. Housing is such an issue here right now. Again, not unique to Maine. Right. Um, but exacerbated a little bit here by the, the age of the housing stock in general and the huh. fact that the places that are desirable to vacation are desirable for second homes. And there's a very entrenched culture of summer people here. They drive up prices, gobble up the real estate. It's very hard to house your workers if you're able to find any. So we you know, had just shipped our May issue of the magazine. We're, it's sort of this classic summer preview issue. And I had quite a few conversations with folks looking ahead to the summer, even though it's, you know, this was in March. It felt very distant to most of us. Staffing is definitely the, the, the concern on, on the big, And so it's still it's still the concern, obviously. Yeah, I think it is. Now, the visa programs, you know, I think there might be some relief there. I think the, right. the troubles that that we watched play out, which were not unique to the pandemic, um, there's been a push in places like MDI, for example, where some nonprofits and state agencies have gotten together and tried really actively to create uh, workforce housing. And so there are places where that's being alleviated a little bit, but um, it's, a, it's a real struggle, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the interesting thing is, I mean, you were talking about the summer season. Obviously, that's high season. But Maine may not have an off-season anymore. <laughs> I mean, because people uh, are going there even during what used to be called the mud season in, in spring. Green, by the way. <laughs> which you're, you're in the mud season It has right begun, now. yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that was a big... I think you and I had this conversation years ago. That, that was a big revelation for me when we updated the book uh, in 2018 or 2017 because it, it had been a bit, I think, since the last update at that time. And... Because the 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 space between um, between uh, editions was a little longer, it was really evident how much I was talking to hoteliers and and folks in the lodging industry, for example, and saying, "Oh, you know, is it still true that you you know shut down after Labor Day?" And they'd say, "Oh, no, 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 it's Columbus Day here. It's Indigenous Peoples Day now." And, and that trend really continued throughout the the work of updating the book this last summer. Again, it's a little bit staffing contingent, and there were places that said. Gosh, I'd really love to stay open through October into November, but it's just going to depend on how I do after the college kids go back to school and that sort of thing. But, yeah. you know, I, I, people like me and you, we, we get some credit slash blame <laughs> for this because <laughs> one of my 
first pieces of advice about Maine is that it is it is a brilliant, brilliant place to visit outside the summer season and the autumn for damn sure. And uh, I think the spring, like we call mud season for a reason, um, are really underrated times to. So okay, so why why should somebody come in mud season? Well, I mean, the thing about mud season, it's so called because um, not because it's particularly rainy or, or gloomy necessarily. It's we're not, you know, this isn't the Pacific Northwest, but right. um, the snows are melting. It is a very rural place. We have a lot of dirt and gravel roads. You know, those can sometimes be a challenge, but that is more of an inland problem than a coastal problem. It's probably hmm. fair to say. So it, it wouldn't let the mud season uh, nickname scare you too much. There are simply far fewer people around and especially take a place like Acadia for example it is still very very quiet in the month of April and actually my family and I spent a week in April on MDI that is Mount Desert Island where Acadia National Park is found this time last year and it was one of the most pleasant getaways that we've had in years wow Uh, yeah we stayed on the um on the on the west side of the island if you if you can picture Mount Desert Island on a map it is cleaved almost in two, cleft almost in two. Well, let's say I think cleaved <laughs> <laughs> is split almost in two by what's called Psalm Sound. It's uh, it's sort of a fjord-like finger that moves up the middle. The Bar Harbor and the more touristed portions of the island are to the east. The sort of fishing villages called uh, Tremont and Southwest Harbor is the kind of a boat-building town with a splash of tourism. They're on the west, and you know we. We were able to stay in Tremont, and there's just no evidence that one of the most popular national parks on this side of the country is 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 roaring. We walked down yeah. to see Bass Harbor Lighthouse on a Saturday night, watched a beautiful sunset. It was us and, you know, three other couples. Wow. We went into Bar Harbor, which is starting to emerge from sort of winter torpor at that time, where we were able to have, like, a great meal and walk to an ice cream shop. At 10 p.m., you know, it's staying light out now, pretty late. Not quite that late. Sure. Um, but being able to do anything in any main town in the spring after 9 p.m. is a bit of a luxury. And the fact that you can get away with that in Bar Harbor and not be fighting crowds is pretty special. Yeah, and but plenty I, of room on the trails. I guess you'd have to be more of a self-starter, though, because you're not going to find as many, say, whale-watching cruises. or the, uh, you, you can't swim, obviously, at that time of year. <laughs> I would think maybe if you, you, you know, put your grease all over yourself. Women, J- July, if you went to the coast. I mean, we do. Wow. Um, no, that is absolutely true. I think some of the, the, the tours and the, and the guided amenities aren't there. Um, there are downsides, too. In Acadia, during, during mud season, they often close the uh, carriage roads if the hmm. snow melt is still happening because they can get muddy uh, hmm. and they can get torn up. We did not have, this is actually a bit of word to the wise if people are considering it. We had had across most of Maine a really, really mild winter and it huh. ended fairly early. So here we are a bit muddy right now, but the the, the kinds of uh, like snowmelt issues um, that sometimes keep people off of something like the carriage roads, for example, or some trail systems during the spring, I think that's going to be a, a pretty short period of off limits this year. Interesting. So it's going to be an earlier summer probably for me. It seems that way. It really yeah. does. Yeah. Well, you know, part of what happened during 2020 when the state was for all intents and purposes closed to tourism 
was people got a break from tourism. And the Mainers are known as being, I, I don't know, can I use the word taciturn? Is that too negative? They're, no, they're I don't no- think it is. That's the Yankee <laughs> tradition, right? Yeah. And did they welcome tourists back? Or did they, you know, there were places in the world, like Grand Cayman, uh, decided that they didn't want as many uh, cruise ships coming because the, the people who lived there felt right. such relief uh, for not being inundated with tourists. Uh, did yeah. that happen there in Maine? The relationship with tourism in Maine, and again, it's not unique to Maine, but has always been a little bit schizophrenic or two-sided hmm. and we joked you know around the office in 2020 that you could absolutely get whiplash <laughs> during the shutdown from how fast certain main communities went from stay away stay away stay away to why aren't you coming back why aren't you coming back why aren't you coming back wow. or how dare you keep things closed so so there is always that tension no, I, I think, though, that while, you know, the average Mainer in his or her or their sort of private moments might find something to gripe about, about traffic, or I did hear a lot of people in the service industry kind of griping about how rude people were last summer, which you hate to hear. Oh. Um, but I suppose tensions were high and yeah. you know, it's been yeah. a rough year for everybody. That being said, I mean, I think people recognize the economic necessity And there is a fondness here that's kind of built on generations of mutual reliance Hmm. between summer people and locals. It's a little bit of a different relationship with entrenched, you know, uh, families that have owned the same property and come back to the same town every summer for generations and stay for months at a time. Or you're very moneyed, you know, dynastic families that... Yeah, have you know, right. summer, like the um, bushes. Yeah, right, right. The Rockefellers and that crowd. But a lot of that relationship, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of that attitude really does kind of trickle over towards the, into the way that um, that local people uh, regard visitors generally, which is to say, like, we all do better when the other does better. The Rockefellers need sure. their locals to repair their boats and take care of the place off island when uh, when they're not around. And you know, we just ran a story about the, the village of Northeast Harbor on MDI, for example, where the few year-round businesses that, you know, just depend for to lift the mortgage on the summer people arriving in, uh, you know, May, June. In 2020, when suddenly that wasn't happening, there was a real threat that some of these communities were going to close down. And mm-hmm. the, summer, the Summer Residents Association you know, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars just to donate to sort of spread across the community to keep these people afloat. Because again, the visitors understand that 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 they depend on these places to be there when eventually they do return. Sure. So um, taciturn, you know, this idea that New Englanders are sort of quietly grumpy. (laughs) It has some basis in reality. But what I have found, and I am not a native Mainer, I've been here for about 12 years now, um, follow my native Mainer wife, uh, and I tend to be a little more gregarious than the New England stereotype. What I have found is that it doesn't take much kindness and patience to break through that taciturn facade and find a main character that is really welcoming, really droll, maybe not chatty, 
but hmm. certainly not antisocial in the way that the old stereotype presents. Right, right. Well, let's move on to some advice. Uh, everybody wants to go to Maine, and, and most of those people who want to go want to go to Acadia National Park. Yeah. For this coming summer, is your advice go in late May, early June? And what is the other advice? How do you how do you make that a doable trip? And let's also talk about I, the insidious way that an, an, a new person brought in by the park or a new company is raising prices. I was really upset when we were editing the uh, guidebook about this. Yeah. Um, so my advice would be to book early. That is probably the first line. Isn't it too late for that? Book. Um, no, I think maybe not, uh, because probably we all sat here this winter going, what is this summer going to look like? And mm. I, I'm willing to bet people sort of held off on pulling the trigger a little longer than usual. Sure. I, I know that there are places that open their reservation systems a lot later than usual. So that plays huh. a role. But beyond that, um, I would say a couple of things. Uh, consider staying on the quiet side, which is this western half of the, of the island that I mentioned, which does have far less tourism infrastructure than Bar Harbor does but just simply is not the zoo. I'm really fond mm. of Bar Harbor, but in its worst moments, uh, it can really feel, but you know how National Park gateway towns feel. Sure, you know, sure. A bit of a yeah. carnival. The, the western side of the island, the towns of Tremont and Southwest Harbor, which I'm really fond of, have um, a lot of the sort of just old character that uh, those rock dwellers from a few generations ago would have seen. Mm. Come out of season for sure. In the autumn... And this is an issue that we could have a whole podcast about because the MDI folks are struggling with this in the same way as the Cayman folks are. Um, the cruise ships do start coming pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. fast and furious in September and October in particular. So there is that. But you really don't experience any of that outside of Bar Harbor. Um, huh. That is where the craziness happens. And, and the folks that are on leave from the cruise ships, I know this varies a bit from cruise to cruise, but they don't have the time on the island to get that deep into the park or into some of the other smaller towns. So it's pretty, pretty easy to avoid that. Um, go to the Scudic Peninsula. I know that's uh, mentioned in the book and we elaborate on that a little bit. I think people aren't as familiar with the northerly section of Acadia National Park that is separate from Mount Desert Island. It does not have as much of the classic, like, rounded coastal peaks, Acadia skyline that I think a lot of people associate with, mm -hmm. with the word Acadia, but it does have some beautiful mountains. The Park Service in 2016, 2017, 2018 um, really invested in additional trail infrastructure uh, on Scudic. Um, there is a phenomenal, phenomenal network of uh, gravel bike paths that are really reminiscent of these, you know, century-old carriage trails on the, on, on, the, on the main part of Acadia. There's right. a really beautiful campground. There's some nice places to stay in the town of Winter Harbor. And around that peninsula, uh, in addition to having, like, really that classic main rocky coast, exploding waves, pelagic mm. seabirds kind of vibe, um, there is just a lot more of that old crusty fishing culture <laughs> that right. has been swallowed up a little bit on some of the more visited parts of MDI. You know, many years ago, and I, this is going to sound like I'm bragging, but it, it's actually <laughs> to ask a question. Uh, I won a trip to Maine uh, from the uh, National uh, 
North American Travel Journalists Association. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I, I wrote an article and it won first prize and the the prize was a trip. Would you go and I went to Maine, and I went and I took my then, I think she was six-year-old daughter, and we stayed at what felt like a summer camp for adults. It was this place where we were in this charming little cabin where there were no locks on the doors. They told me, you don't need them here, and there were sailboats that you could you sign out, or they would take you on a on a uh, a lesson. Since I I I would die if I signed out a, <laughs> a sailboat. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, What's but, the worst that could happen? Well, yeah, and everybody <laughs> ate together, and there was like a campfire oh, at night, and it it really was that old fashioned experience. Uh, this was my daughter's now 19, so this was a good 13 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Do those sorts of camp-like experiences still exist, or are they kind of dwindling? They are dwindling. I would say they are harder to find on the coast, where a few decades back you probably found more places that um, that had a bit of that, you know, dirty dancing, like, yeah. skills, old sort of vibe. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there are a couple of places, the Sabasco Harbor Resort, a little uh, on the lower mid coast comes to mind that still has that mystique. And that place is terrific. But uh, a lot of what you're describing, what there used to be um, going back half a century, a full century, you know, a, a lot more of in Maine. And this is more of an inland phenomenon then and certainly now hmm. is the classic Maine sporting camp. Um that's, I think, a really interesting little pocket of the main hospitality world. And it gets acknowledged a little bit in the chapter of our book where we're looking at some side trips inland. Yeah. Um, we name check a couple of places that have um, some of that DNA. But the sporting camps, you know, back in the day, they were intended to, to service um, hunters and uh, mm. anglers and the sports coming in from the big city who you know, ate communally in the way that you're describing had, yeah. you know, the run of these beautiful little properties with lovely cabins and a nice shared lodge. Um, and they're usually found in idyllic and wooded places. The There is something called the Maine Sporting Camp Association. I, I mean, I would recommend this as a trip to anybody. Um, there are, you know, a dozen or more of them kind of hanging around across the state still. And what's neat about them is I think because the uh, ranks of hunters and anglers have dwindled, across the country, you know, sure. in the last 30, 40 years, um, the ones that are still hanging in there, the smart ones, have found ways to really broaden their appeal. And so they're offering, you know, moose safaris or um, hmm. they'll, you know, use the float plane that they once brought English to the remote ponds to just get you into remote trails or places to paddle. They have, you know, uh, registered main guides leading kayak tours and things on staff. And uh, and you still get a lot of the romance that you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. I'm glad it hasn't fully disappeared. One of the surprises in doing this edition of the book was there's a new park to go to in Maine. Uh, that doesn't happen much. Can you talk about that development? Yeah, I want to talk to you about two new parks. actually. Oh, OK, and, please. Uh, <laughs> both of which get a shout out in the book. You know, the Katahdin, excuse me, Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument was declared in the, in the the last days of the Obama administration. So, geez, what are we talking about? So not about? so new. That not one isn't so, so new. new. But it was, you know, at the time that we would have been doing this book last, 
it was a box on a map and not right. very many maps. <laughs> yeah. And um, it is still in 2022 primarily a backcountry aficionados park. There are not a lot of services in the park and not so many near it. This is inland. It's north of Mount Katahdin. It abut what's called Baxter State Park, which I think people recognize the name Mount Katahdin. It's the highest peak in Maine, one of the highest in New England. Baxter State Park is this kind of anomalous park unit that's um, managed as wilderness that surrounds it. Katahdin Woods and Waters, though, is slowly developing some front country infrastructure. There is a really lovely scenic drive in the park. They have done uh, uh, quite a bit working on um, all sorts of information kiosks and some really nice brand new campsites that are a far cry from the sort of like what do you say primitive camping like filtering water and stuff right it has proper right. national park service campsites now which are pretty nice and the little towns surrounding it and i mean the little towns um you know a couple hundred people a couple hundred people here a couple hundred people there hmm. you know are starting to pop up there's a cool new brewery outside of huh. katahdin woods and waters now there are a few b&b's that weren't there before and a nice barbecue place in stacyville and so very slowly that's developing it is it is definitely for the for the active outdoors person. You know, there's not a big, beautiful visitor center yet. It's right. in the works. Um, but there are some <laughs> phenomenal trails and some really gorgeous mountains. And the access is a thousand times easier than it was six or seven years ago. So that's worth a look. The other place that I would mention that was new to the book this year is called Cobbs Cook Shores. Do you happen to remember seeing that one go by? I re that was the one I was referring to, Cobb's oh, Cook Shores. Yeah. So Cobb's Cook Shores is really terrific. And um, not a lot of ink has been spilled about Cobb's Cook Shores yet. It's um, in our book. It is. And just uh, in January or February they do it, it made the New York Times uh, 52 places that they do at the beginning of every uh, year. Uh -huh. I might be getting that name wrong, but um, that was a no, pretty big deal. No, you got it. Yeah. You know, the farthest you can go um, up the coast, northeast along the coast, is what Mainers call down east. This is a phrase I'm very familiar with. It can be confusing to other people because you're, of course, heading northeast. It derives from an old nautical term describing the coast that was downwind from Boston and the major shipping centers. Oh, and I never knew that. That's now interesting. Now you know. Yeah. And it's the easternmost point in the United States. It is, you know, beyond Acadia. And boy, does the tourist traffic thin out pretty rapidly when you start getting far down east. We've got some nice little inns and a uh, couple cool restaurants and things in the book, obviously, that are out there. Some nice B&Bs. You don't see a lot of larger or particularly flashy tourism infrastructure there. But there's no shortage of places to stay, places to eat out. The coast is just as rocky and rugged and almost big sur ish in places mm. um, as you can imagine and god it's just a fraction of the folks that you're going to see farther down the coast Cobbs cook shores is actually a series of smallish parklands each one might have you know uh, anywhere from two to five or six miles of sometimes always graded sometimes paved um, trails accessing some of this classic uh, coastline some of the highest tides in the northern, well, our continent, in, the, in North America. Um, tons of wildlife, some really beautiful little sort of picnic kiosk infrastructure. It is a private park. It hmm. is constructed by a fellow named Gilbert Butler. Well, the foundation of a fellow named Gilbert Butler, who is a centimillionaire who 
made his money in finance and is spending it in his older age on a series of parks and conservation projects around the world, really kind of motivated by this whole last child in the woods concern, right? Hmm. That people need to get, especially young people, um, out of doors in a way sure. that in his mind, they're not anymore. And man, is it gorgeous. Um, they talk about it, you know, being another Acadia way down east in another 10 or 15 years. Wow. Just how pie in the sky that is, I honestly don't know. But for pure scenic value, man, it, it rivals MBI. I was so impressed with that place. Wow. All right. You've made me want to go. We've been talking a lot about deep nature and places you can get off the beaten path. But I think one of the surprises for people going to Maine today is how many creature comforts there are. For example, there is a world-class dining scene in Portland, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I just got done talking with a pair of restaurateurs yesterday who are, um, you know, one of the beard finalists for the best new restaurant in the Northeast. Um, And that's not new, but it's developed pretty rapidly. And the really neat thing is, Yes. So Portland, Maine is a dining location par excellence. Why? Why? How did that happen? I would say there are three main reasons. My brain is like, aren't there four? Um, (laughs) The two of them are related. I mean, in one of which uh, the two that are related are frankly just product. Um, The the kind of seafood, obviously, that Mm. uh, you can pull out of the Gulf of Maine is unparalleled. And especially in recent years, there are more and more producers who are realizing that there are restaurateurs who will pay for a premium product. And so they're incentivizing fishermen to take a lot more care. They are finding interesting ways to catch them and subsequently prepare like ground fish that aren't uh, quite as sexy or certainly don't have the mystique of lobster. Um, Mm. And related to that, there is a really entrenched uh, emphasis on organic agriculture in Maine and has been for about 50 years when much of the rural parts of the state benefited from uh, sort of back to the land push. Hmm. Subsequently, you know, one of the first uh, organic farming organizations, which is called MOFCA, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, got its start here in 1972. And you can find, I think it's not just chest thumping to say, like, some of the best organic produce in the world despite our short growing season and an abundance of it. So I think that's attracted a lot of restaurateurs. And then, of course, there are all these folks from uh, elsewhere in the country who looked to Portland as their markets got just more and more saturated or more and more expensive. Hmm. Um, You have all kinds of young chefs who were hotshots in Boston or New York, but opening a place on their own there was going to be a huge lift. And so they gradually kind of matriculated to Portland. And they were following the lead of some trend-setting chefs that were really pushing the farm-to-table thing, you know, 20 years ago when that right. when that was still novel. There's a restaurant that's in the book this year, uh, just for example, that um, was new in the book this year. It's called Terlingua. It's sort of a brilliant mashup of uh, barbecue and Tex-Mex, and the youngish, super talented hotshot folks that run it were, you know, working in hospitality in Austin. And this is a place where they looked around and said, like, this place is crowded and expensive. And if we're going to write our ticket, we got to pull up stakes. And so, you know, folks like them come to Portland and 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 they've really been able to make a go of it. It was also a town that I guess, in fairness, you know, 20 or 30 years ago was a little bit depressed, you know, Uh. um, 
a fishing town that like a lot of New England fishing towns have like seen better days. And so there, this has changed a lot, but there yeah. were cheap rents and there were, you know, cool warehouse spaces and cool neighborhoods with infrastructure that was just waiting for somebody to come in and take it over. Yeah. Um, and besides the besides the uh, restaurants, there's a big brewery scene. It sounds like there's some there's some great museums in Maine. Uh, there, yeah. There's so many cultured pleasures to be the had. The brewery scene is out of this world. And I know, again, that that's popular everywhere. But we have just <laughs> gone gangbusters on that. The state and the city of Portland both rank number one or duke it out, with, you know, depending on the year for the number of breweries per capita. Um, just as a beer drinker, the quality is off the hook. And then I, you really have to hand it to the brewery scene over the last couple of years for adapting to COVID well. One of the really nice, I think, um, repercussions of the pandemic is, yes, certainly breweries and to a lesser extent restaurants and all other kinds of businesses and organizations have embraced outdoor infrastructure and beer gardens and alfresco dining in a way that in the summer of 2020 was sort of a stopgap, but hmm. now so rapidly already feels like part of the culture. And it was to a degree anyway. Like we've been eating lobster rolls, you know, on the harbor next to where the fishermen were catching it sure. for generations. But there are so many cool places just to hang out and eat and drink outside now. Yeah. And I'll say one more thing about Portland if I'm not belaboring the point. Please, please. Um, you know, I'm nodded to the fact that the days of cheap rents in Portland are kind of no more. And, you know, that comes with downsides. But the really interesting thing about that is the way, you know, the never ending chain of places getting expensive and spinning off creatives into new places is, is starting to take some of that breadth of, of culinary talent and retail talent and artistic talent and spin it out into the broader small towns of rural Maine where, mm. you know, neat, neatly located former mill towns with a lot of that same appeal that Portland had 15, 20 years ago, are now benefiting from some of that creative energy. I Can you name one or two? Yeah, I mean, a town like Rockland comes to mind. That's that's right in my neighborhood here on the mid-coast. Um, you know, Rockland, if you would have picked up a Fromer's book from the 90s, depending on how polite it was being, might have mentioned <laughs> that, you know, it stunk like fish meal. It was, it was a fishing mm -hmm. town that... Um, they had a bunch of fish processing plants and it was run down. And it was a great place to get in a bar fight. You can still get in a bar fight in Rockland if you put your <laughs> mind to it. And right. there's still a fishing fleet there, you know, which is great. It hasn't lost that character, but it is, uh, well, it builds itself as the arts capital of Maine now, which is maybe a little hyperbole, but um, something called the Center for Maine Contemporary Art opened there a few years ago. The gallery scene is fantastic. The Farnsworth Art Museum has been an anchor of, of, of Rockland for a long time, but suddenly there's a bunch of great restaurants and it's Portland folks who moved on up the coast in search of, you know, a little bit less crowds go right. through the restaurant scene and in general. Um, a few inland towns come to mind too. The little town of Norway is, is sort of a gateway to the Western mountains that has as nice a downtown as any place in New England. It is, man, beautiful and there's not an empty storefront and it's just a suspiciously large amount of young people for a state with the highest median age in the country does um, it's the state with the highest median age in the country wow is that is, fascinating yeah. well you've made you've made me realize it's been too long since i've been to maine uh come on up 
I would love to. And for anybody listening, uh, as we said at the very start, uh, Brian Kevin is the editor of Down East Magazine. As you can tell, he knows everything about Maine. And he also wrote our book, Fromer's Maine Coast, uh, at which I'm so grateful you did. And I'm so grateful that you joined me today, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Pauline. You really should get up here. I'd love to show you around. Oh, that would be great. And thanks for listening. We're going to say goodbye for this week. And to those who are traveling, as I always say, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week.